Beloved, we are in an unusual time. You have to catch what the Spirit of the Lord is doing and what, what the, the Spirit of the Lord is saying right now. And I just want to say this. On Thursday, I don't think I've ever been, I've been in ministry almost 25 years. I don't think I've ever been in a ministry, in a meeting of ministers like that, uh, where there was such unity, there was such fellowship, there was such uh, agreement on the centrality of the gospel of Jesus being the only thing that is going to bring America back to God and bring us to unity in America. And it was absolutely amazing. And so, while the, amen, amen. While there's many messages going around, I want to tell you that there is a message that is coming from the church right now. The church is beginning to get its voice and speak with clarity uh, on these issues and uh, the issues of uh, racism and, and uh, injustice, and it is powerful. I am, I am astounded, to be quite honest. I, I was thinking about this past Thursday and uh, the, the, the fellowship that was in the room between pastors and leaders of different denominations and cultures, the depth of spirituality, and then just the real talk. You know when you're in a meeting when there's real talk going on? And, you know, half the people are like, oh, amen. And other half of people are like, oh, my. And you're just working it through and you're dialoguing. Well, that's what the pastors and leaders were doing. It wasn't posturing. It wasn't just spiritual icing on the cake. It was real talk, real prayer. Beloved, something is going on in our city that we just need to take note of right now. I mean, the Lord is doing something. And so I, I look at the way the, the media does and the way it it, it, it takes, you know, uh, is, is, it takes its opportunity to, to emphasize whatever it wants to emphasize. And uh, at the same time, there are other stories going on that are far different than what we see often emphasized in the media. And I'll just say this, the Lord has a story that's yet to be finished, Amen. yet to be finalized. And uh, Jesus, who is the one who's anointed to bring justice, he will release justice. Amen. Amen. We're in a very unusual time. It's an, it's an awesome time, an amazing time, a, a unique time. And it's very appropriate that this weekend uh, I'm preaching on spiritual warfare because I think that in the mix of all this communication, all these things that are flying around, there is a backdrop that lets us know that there are spiritual forces at work that are far bigger than any political agendas or any media outlets that there is uh, angels and demons clashing behind what we can see that are really, uh, see, we're seeing manifestation of that in the natural. And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning as we finalize our series on the book of Ephesians. Let's go ahead and have a word of prayer and we will get into this. Lord, we love you so much. And Jesus, we want to set our hearts towards you. And Lord, we, we're sobered as we look at the events that are in the media this weekend. Um, we see the, the young people that are declaring their, their First Amendment rights. And then we see these, these other things happening with unarmed people losing their life. And Lord, our hearts are, are, are touched and, and we're mourning and lamenting the negative. We're celebrating the positive and we're asking God that you would speak clearly to us in the middle of all of it. And we understand that there are forces that are unseen, that are moving things in the natural. And so I pray that even today, 
our eyes would be opened to recognize that there's more going on here than what we can see and what we can feel. And at the end of it all, we recognize that, Jesus, you're the only answer. And so, Lord, I'm asking even this morning, you give me clarity. You'd allow me to speak as an oracle. And even as Paul prayed here in Ephesians 6, that that prayers would be made for him to speak boldly the gospel, the mystery of the gospel, as he ought to. Lord, I pray even for myself that I would speak boldly the mystery of the gospel as I ought to. Help me this morning. Stand with me here. Hold my hand, I ask. In the name of Jesus, everybody said amen. 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 You guys still here this morning? Can you say a better amen? Amen. All right. Hey, that's good. That's real good. All right. I won't, ma- I won't beg you for amens this morning, but let's go for it. All right. So Ephesians 6, here we are. Uh, last portion of the book of Ephesians. And I'm sure many of you have heard teaching on these verses. And I was struck as I was uh, reapproaching these verses this week just to study them and look into them. I was struck with how often I've heard teaching on these passages, but haven't ever thought of it in the context of the broader book. You know, here we are at the end of this long letter that Paul has written to uh, this church of Ephesus, and, and he knows it's going to be, you know, shared with the other churches in the region, Colossae and Laodicea and others. And, and he's intentionally summarizing his thoughts, and he's giving a final charge. And, and that's what I think we've got to catch is that when we look at these passages here from uh, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, through at the end of the chapter 24, verse 24, Paul is being extremely intentional in what he's saying, and he's lining up this conversation in light of everything he's already taught. And I think that's just, a, it's just an, uh, an idea that we really have to keep front and center as we're thinking about these passages, because oftentimes, like I said, you hear a message on spiritual warfare, and, and it starts at verse 10 of chapter 6, and you just, you just go with that without considering the context. And so for me, as I was thinking and praying about the context uh, that, that had, Paul has already set with the book, I, I begin to see this entire passage in a completely different light. Now, of course, Paul is talking about spiritual warfare, and he starts the whole section with this idea, and I'm mentioning this in B here under Roman rule 1, that that you, you don't do spiritual warfare in your own strength. You do it in the power of the Lord. Amen. You don't fight spiritual forces with natural means. There's no way to do that. None of us has the, the power, the ability in and of ourselves to deal with the things that are going on in the spirit, in the unseen world. And so Paul starts this section off with, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And believers, I'll tell you what, if we would just swallow that theme every single day of our life and live from that place, it would settle a lot for us. Because a lot of the trouble we get in is trying to be strong in our own strength. Be strong in our own might. You know what I realize? If you want to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, you've got to put your might down. You've got to say, it's not in my strength. I don't have the ability. It's your ability. And that's what I'm coming into, not my own ability. And, and I'll tell you what, if, if you had a choice, would you rather have the strength of the Lord or your strength? Or should I say it like this? The strength of the Lord or your strength? 
But it's funny how we will get in the flesh and we'll fight and we'll protect and we'll do everything we can, put up our own dukes, instead of allowing the Lord to fight our battles. Instead of allowing the power of the Lord where we would stand still and see his salvation work on our behalf instead of allowing that to happen in our lives. So often we get in trouble when we get in the flesh and try to fight our own battles. But Paul says, no, no, no. When it comes to spiritual warfare, it's got to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Amen. And then the other piece of information about this chapter that's so, so critical is this. It's that Paul is drawing heavily from a prophetic passage in the Old Testament. He's drawing from Isaiah 59. And it's not just he, he quotes it a little bit, but when you actually look at certain portions of Isaiah 59, it becomes really, really evident that Paul, when he's, a write, when he's writing here in Ephesians 6, verse 10 and forward, that he has Isaiah 59 in his mind. And so my point would be this, that you really can't understand Ephesians 6 unless you understand Isaiah 59. Does that make sense? And so what I want to do is I want to take a minute and I want to read the portion that Paul really is referencing from Isaiah 59. I want to draw out a few thoughts about it and then allow that lens to then inform the way that we look at the rest of the, the, the passage in here in Ephesians 6. So um, <clears throat> Isaiah 59 is a passage about the return of the Lord. It's a passage about the day of the Lord. Now, it would make sense, Paul ending this letter to, to the uh, church of Ephesus, that he is also in his mind, he's thinking about the day of the Lord. Because if you remember, at the beginning of Ephesians, in Ephesians 1, he talks about the mystery hidden from the ages in which God will join everything in heaven and earth together under one head, the Lord Jesus. That whole reality, that whole transaction of everything coming together under one head, the Lord Jesus, that's known as the day of the Lord. That's when the Lord Jesus returns. Well, Isaiah 59 is a passage about the day of the Lord. So let's look at this from verse 14 to 19 in Isaiah 59. I put it here in your notes. Let's just read through this and I'll make a comment or two about it. So uh, Isaiah prophesies and he says this. He says, justice is turned back and righteousness stands afar off. For truth is fallen in the street and equity or fairness cannot enter. So truth fails and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Then the Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. Wow, that almost sounds like today. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. And I, I italicized some of the portions of this passage because I think they're clear that Paul was drawing off of them. When, and we'll sh I'll show it to you when we actually look at the verses in Ephesians 6. That there was no intercessor. Therefore, his own arm brought salvation for him, and his own righteousness, it sustained him. For he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head, and he put on the garments of vengeance for clothing, and was clad with zeal as a cloak. 
According to their deeds, accordingly he will repay fury to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies. The coastlands will be, uh, he will fully repay. So shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. When the enemy comes in like a flood, the spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against him. So it's clear to me now, again, that Paul has this whole picture from Isaiah 59 in his in his mind when he's writing Ephesians 6. Now, let me just comment on Isaiah 59. Again, it's a day of the Lord passage. It's talking about the day in which the Lord will return. Now, it has, it has um, inference to the first coming, but it's primarily about the second coming. And it's picturing Jesus as a warrior king. Everybody say warrior king. That's what he's coming back as, beloved. He's coming back as brave heart, ready to bring justice to the nations and to, to fight for his bride. Hallelujah. He's coming back with fire in his eyes. The Bible says, Isaiah 59, he's wrapped, he's wrapped himself in a cloak and the cloak is called zeal. I love Isaiah 42 when it talks about Jesus coming back to bring justice. It, it says, he will cry aloud like a woman in labor. I, and I just, I, I, don't know, I don't know how that makes you feel. I've been ringside to four of these. I've never had a baby, obviously. But I've been ringside to four deliveries. And there is nothing as fierce as a woman in labor. Come on. And when the Lord crying as a woman in labor, it means this, that that baby is getting ready to come. There's no reverse. And when he cries aloud, that's a warrior's cry. And the resolve and the fierceness of a woman who's about to have a baby, that's the way the Lord is coming, wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. He's coming as a mighty man of war, and he's going to bring justice. What it said in Isaiah 59 is he realizes that there is a place, a status of the earth where justice is fallen, where truth is fallen, and there's no one who can fix it. That's the idea. And here's what I realized, beloved, and I even prefaced today's message with the comments I made, because I look at the status of our nation, I look at the difficulty, the, the challenge, and I realize this, there's not a human answer. The only answer is Jesus changing hearts and shifting things in the spiritual realm. That's the only answer. So that righteousness and justice can be manifest by the nature of God. You know, the... There's so many messages that are going to so, you know, supposedly bring societal change. But if the message of the cross is absent from the message, that message is ultimately impotent. And so he looked and there was no man. That's what it said in Isaiah 59. There was no man to stand in the gap. There was no one to bring the answers necessary. The social challenges that are in the earth right now and, and at the end of the age, clearly from Isaiah 59, will be so complex that humanity will come to its end in its ability to answer them. And we, beloved, are in a context just like that right now. And he says this in Isaiah 59, he says, the one that departs from evil makes himself a prey. 
I mean, I don't know if I've ever, I mean, at least in my lifetime, I've never seen it so much where people that will just stand for truth get vilified. Well, they're just stand for, for righteousness. They just get vilified. It doesn't matter on the right or on the left. If you stand for Jesus, no matter where you are right now in society, you become a prey. And the Lord, he has an, he has an opinion about that. The Lord saw it and is displeased. And he's displeased that there's not justice. He's displeased that there's not equity. And, and when, I, when I see this about the heart of the Lord, I say, yes, Lord, I want to enter into fellowship with you even in your displeasure. Because I want to be able to stand in the tension with the Lord about what he says is not good and not get my opinion from Fox, CNN, MSNBC, or my Facebook news feed. Oh, I need to get a better amen right there. And the Lord saw that there was no one, there was not an intercessor, so his own arm brought salvation, and he sustained himself in righteousness. And then in verse 17, we get this picture of the Lord cladding himself like a warrior, which is multiple times emphasized through the prophets. Isaiah himself said it on several different occasions. The Lord putting on the garments and the, the, uh, the um, armor of a warrior. And he has a helmet of salvation. And he has a, a breastplate of righteousness. And he's wrapped in zeal as a cloak. And then it says, he will repay. He will repay. I'll tell you what. I, sometimes I get under the burden in prayer when I see injustice in the earth. And, and I'm not just talking about in America. I see it in so many places around the earth. And I just, I just get, I get in a place in prayer often where my heart is breaking and I don't feel like I've got an answer. I mean, just something like the global human trafficking, the global sex trade, where children are being bought and sold all across the nations. And, and you know, some estimates have as many as 20 million uh, uh, children under 16 that are in sex slavery across the nations. Injustice on so many fronts. I mean, that's just one area. Racial injustice, inequality, poverty, all sorts of things, all across the nation. Man, you get under the weight of that sometimes and you feel like your heart is going to break. You're like, what are we going to do? And you realize that the infrastructure of nations and the, the social you know, aspects and the societal governmental things are all so broken. You say, what is going to happen? How is this going to be fixed? And you realize the only answer is if the Lord comes and brings justice. But here's the thing that actually gives me hope. He promises that he will. He promises that he'll make all the wrong things right. He'll address every injustice. He is going to come and bring justice to the nations. He's going to overthrow, the Bible says in, in, uh, in Haggai, he's going to overthrow the thrones of all nations. I mean, can you imagine? This is our Jesus. He's not coming back with a little sweet lamb on his shoulders. Hi. That's not, he's coming back like a warrior to deal with everything that's wrong. He's going to make all the wrong things right. That's where my hope is. My hope isn't in a new political leader or a new social program. 
or new funding or new laws. It's not in any of that. My hope is in Jesus to make it right. And on this side, to enter the hearts of men, to convict people, to bring them to their knees, to cause them to come to conviction and salvation, and that ultimately the greatest injustice that the earth has ever seen is that the the Son of God hasn't been worshipped and glorified properly, that that injustice will come to an end through massive global revival, and then He will take authority and change the nations. Amen. That's what we're believing for. He's going to repay fury to his adversaries. We see him in fire, recompense to his enemies, the coastlands. He's he's saying the furthest way, places far off, he will repay. Man, when I get under the burden of the injustice in the earth, I, I get hope because I know he will make it right. And they'll all fear the name of the Lord. Okay, so this is what Paul has in mind. He goes, when the enemy comes in, like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord will raise up a standard against him. This is what Paul is quoting from when he gives us Ephesians 6.10. Now, let's go ahead then and look at Roman numeral 2, be strong in the Lord. Now that we have that in our minds, the, the warrior King Jesus returning and bringing justice, coming as a warrior in armor, in zeal, going to make all the wrong things right. And then Paul goes, now, verse 10, be strong in the Lord, beloved. Get into his strength. Get into who he is as the warrior king who'll bring justice. Be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. And, And the unsaid thing there is this, you've got to put your strength down or you've got to give your strength away to step into his strength. There is a human weakness that is required for us to experience the strength of the Lord. Paul said, in my weakness, his strength is made perfect. It doesn't look like fighting for yourself. It doesn't look like, you know, protecting yourself, putting up your dukes at every every opportunity. I'm not saying you shouldn't speak out. You should. But there is a humility and a meekness and going low that enables the power of God to be seen through a people. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. That is so, so critical. What Paul's doing right there is he's referencing what he said in Ephesians 3. He said, I'm praying that Christ would dwell in your hearts through faith, that you would be strengthened with might by his spirit in your inner man. He's referencing that thing he had just said a few chapters earlier. He goes, I'm looking for the might of God to be inside of you as a revelation of what? The love of God. That we would live in the love of God and through that place of submitting ourselves to love, saying no to hate, no to anger, that, man, the the power of God would be manifest through us. That's to be strong in the Lord. Now he goes, now, put on the whole armor of God. And and I appreciate all the Bible teachers that have taken us through the whole armor. And, you know, I think there's truths, actually, that Paul plugs in to the whole armor. And I remember back in the day when my kids used to watch Bible Man, we bought the Bible Man whole armor of God. Did you ever get that for your kids? A little plastic helmet of salvation, a little breastplate. We had our guys dressed up in the armor of God. I'm pretty sure Paul in a Roman jail 
<laughs> referencing Isaiah 59, was never thinking that the armor of God would be commercialized into a child's toy. But it is what it is. But what Paul is saying with put on the whole armor of God is he's saying the same kind of thing he's saying in, in verse 10. He's saying you have to embrace the strength of the Lord. And particularly the strength of the Lord you have to embrace is who the Lord is as the warrior king. You've got to come under the armor of God. You've got to come under Christ as the king. He's referencing Isaiah 59. And he says that's the only way you'll be able to stand is in love and in God's strength and under the warrior king. That's the idea. Us putting on the armor of God is us seeing Jesus as the one who brings justice, who's got the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation on, and us coming under him. Remember he said, my yoke is easy, my burden is light, learn from me. I'm meek and lowly of heart. Take my yoke upon you. Remember that? This is the exact same idea. That we take Jesus' yoke, we take who Jesus is as the warrior king, and we come under him. We're not fighting our battles. He is. Hallelujah. Be strong, Lord. Put on the whole armor that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Here's the thing. The enemy is a liar and a deceiver. And this wiles term, it's an important term. You know, most of the time people come to me and say, man, I'm just, I'm just under spiritual warfare. I'm under spiritual attack. I, I mean, Satan himself is in my bedroom attacking me. And I, I just go, you know, I, I don't think Lucifer is in your bedroom. But what happens is we, we tend to mysticalize this thing and we end up putting more faith in the power of the devil than we do in the, in the power of God. And, and the reason that happens to people is because of wiles. Wiles are tricky schemes. They're deceptive stories. That's what they are. To get you in, ensnared in a system of belief that ultimately has you put your faith in the enemy more than you put your faith in God. Wiles are deceptions. Wiles are lies. Wiles, it's falsehoods that get you entrapped. And so he says this, you're going to put on the whole armor of God, you're going to come up under Jesus, and you'll be able to stand when the enemy comes against you with tricky schemes and deceptions to try to get you to put your faith in him over the power of God. You stand, you'll be able to stand against the wiles. He goes, now be clear, verse 12. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Listen, I don't know who you think your problem is, but there is not a person that is your problem. Listen, listen. There is not a single person that is your problem because we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. That human being is not your problem. They aren't. They might be your assignment, but I promise you, they're not your problem. That's not where your warfare is. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We don't wrestle against people. And so often, the enemy 
His scheme is to get us to imagine that he's not the problem, they're the problem. Now, are you guys hearing me right now? I love this imagery. It's so true of marriage, but it's really how the enemy, how he presents himself. And I've shared this before, but it's just such a, it's such a vivid picture of how this works. The enemy shows up like the matador. You remember the matador? He has the red you know, cape that he waves out there in front of the bull. And if the bull could just realize, I don't want to run at the cape. I just want to just go 10 degrees to the right, and I'm going to hit that matador, and I'm going to take him for the ride of his life. But that red cape, it incites the bull, right? And the bull goes running past the matador. He's waving the cape. He pulls the cape out, and he pulls a sword and sticks it in. This is exactly what the enemy does with us. He says, I'm not the problem. I'm not even here. Your problem is this person. Come and get him. Don't you see them provoking you? Don't you see what they're saying? Don't you see what they're doing? Didn't you read your Facebook feed today? Didn't you see what was on the news? Come and get them. And you run. You run at them. And when you run past, he pulls that cape out of the way and he stabs you. And he gets you bound in offense and unforgiveness and anger and hatred. And that's the kind of way that he works his schemes. The matador is always waving the red thing, or the red uh, cape, whatever you want to call that. Do you want to go after the cape or do you want to go after the one that's waving it? Understand, we're not wrestling against people. It happens in marriage. It happens in families, parents and children. It happens you know, in work, boss, employee. It, ha- it happens all over the place. Friends, he goes, that's not the problem here. The problem that's going on isn't between people. You don't have a personal problem. You have a spiritual problem. We wrestle against flesh and blood. And then what he's going to do is he's going to give us a list. Now, a lot of times Bible teachers, what they like to do is they like to hone in on this list. And they like to give tons of commentary on the list. And as I was coming to this list, I was like, okay, I want to explain this. Principalities and powers and, 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 and rulers of darkness and spiritual hosts of wickedness. Like, I want to explain this. But then I started thinking about it. Paul doesn't explain it. He mentions it twice in the book of Ephesians. And he mentions it a couple more times in his letters in the New Testament. We see in the book of Revelation that there is, you know, the red dragon and his host of of darkness. But we don't see a ton of emphasis giving to, oh, the devil and explaining all the hosts of darkness and what every single one of them does. Most commentators, they look at this passage and they they recognize that Paul is identifying different ranks in the spiritual order on the demonic side, principalities and powers, rulers of darkness and spiritual wickedness. He's identifying perhaps different classifications of demon powers. And those things are real. They're there and they're impacting human lives. Uh, Gabe, this morning when when he uh, prayed the prayer for healing, he, he, he read out of a passage where it said that Jesus went and healed everybody who is oppressed with evil spirits, right? And so we see biblically the activity of the devil. But here's the point I want to make. 
Most often in the Bible, when we see the devil identified, mentioned, and there's detail on it, we're actually seeing the Lord describing the devil's destruction. Come on. We're seeing Satan fall like lightning. We're seeing he cast out the spirits with a word. We're seeing, I mean, 95% of the time, the expression from the scripture is the devil's defeat. Even, even when Ezekiel and Isaiah identify Lucifer himself, he says, oh, how you've fallen, son of the morning. Oh, you who are exalted, you've been brought down. And the nations of the earth will look at you and say, is this the man that deceived the nations? We have so much in the scripture about how Jesus disarmed rulers and authorities how he's triumphing over them through the victory of the cross and that the church gets to step in and walk in the same authority. My point is this. I don't want to say that there's not demon power and there's not forces that we wrestle with. There absolutely are. But the the majority way that demon powers are expressed in the scripture is they are in defeat or on their way to being defeated. Do you hear me? And so I don't want us as a spiritual family, to go, principalities and powers, spiritual wickedness, I got some spiritual wickedness in my bedroom. Like, I don't want you scared of demons because we don't have to be. We can be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Amen. Now, do you have to wrestle? Yes. Is there a wrestle? Yes. Is that real? Absolutely yes. But Paul's calling us to live in love, to live in righteousness, to live in meekness, and he's identifying love and righteousness and meekness as how we wrestle. By being strong in the Lord, coming up under Jesus, that's how we wrestle. Man, when you actually get this thing in context, you realize that that Paul isn't just saying we're going to wrestle, tussle back to and fro. This idea of wrestling is a wrestling to subdue, a wrestling to overcome, a wrestling to walk out the victory of the cross. And this is what dawned on me. This is a huge thought. I, I got to get you to hear me on this. Genesis 3, at the beginning of the story, when, when Adam and Eve fall, and, and when the father begins to speak to the serpent in the garden, and, and Genesis 3.15, he says, the seed of the woman will crush your head, Lucifer. Which I love that. I just love it because it's just a shock. The archangel Lucifer will be destroyed by a man. Woo. That's huge. What? I mean, what a colossal thought. You think you're awesome, huh, archangel? I'm going to use a human being to destroy you. And Jesus Christ, through the cross, disarmed principalities and powers, made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in the cross. Now, here's the commission of the church. Be strong in the Lord in his victory and wrestle against those principalities. What? That we would walk out the victory that Jesus won on the cross. Beloved, it's not just one man that's crushing the head of the devil. It's you and I in the name of Jesus. Oh, my goodness. And I love what Paul said in the book of Romans. He says that God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. And that tends to be the primary way that the scripture addresses 
principalities and powers and rulers of darkness and spiritual hosts of wickedness. They are defeated at the cross and on their way to being fully defeated and being crushed. Is there a wrestle? Yes. Are there times of difficulty? Yes. Are are there times when our minds, you know, just get overwhelmed with thoughts and we get anxieties and and difficulties come and and calamity? Do those things happen? Yes. Do we wrestle through it? Yes. Do we stand when we've done all to stand? Yes. Do we do it in our own might? No. We do it in in the strength of his might. And in the victory of who he is as the captain of the host of the Lord's armies. And that's what he's talking about here. So look at Roman numeral three, the armor of God. He goes, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Now, he goes through these different pieces of armor, and in each one of these pieces, he's, he's bringing out a spiritual truth that we need to employ in how we live, but you got to see the bigger picture. You know, I've heard Bible teachers say, well, Paul's in a Roman jail, and so he's looking at a Roman officer, and so he's getting all these ideas about what the armor of God could look like. And I say, yes, I'm sure he saw Roman officers, and I'm sure he saw their attire, but he wasn't thinking about a Roman officer in his attire. He was thinking about Jesus Christ in his attire, coming as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he says, I want you to put on Christ, put on the nature of Jesus. And then he begins to identify the different pieces of the armor. And what he's describing to us are critical truths that we'll need to live out in order for us to stand in righteousness. It's exactly what he's describing. So in in Isaiah 59, he says, first of all, take up the whole armor in order to withstand in the evil day. So in Isaiah 59, he talks about the day of injustice. He talks about the day where justice is turned back and and righteousness stands far off. He's talking about the day where Whoever is righteous makes himself a prey. What's he describing? He's talking about ultimately the evil day being the day prior to when the Lord returns and wickedness comes to its fullness in the earth. This is a day of the Lord passage, beloved. Ephesians 6.10 is a day of the Lord passage geared to get the church ready to stand when difficulty hits the planet at its highest measure. Can I get an amen? Amen. And so he goes, you've got to take on this armor. You have to have this lifestyle of of being in Jesus and and embracing his, his, his actions, his attitude, his attributes. You have to be in him in order to stand when, when the evil day comes, when it gets difficult at the end of the age. And so he says this, he goes, take on the armor and stand and do all to stand and stand therefore. Here's the thing, beloved. You know what? It's not always going to feel good, is it? It's not always going to be easy, is it? 
It's going to be difficult sometimes, especially when people say things against you, you know, and they, they criticize you and, and speak falsehoods against you and, and come out against you. I, you know, in the last, I guess, 10 days, I've gotten three nasty emails about how I need to repent and, and turn away just because we're trying to do one race. Well, that's three, but I'm sure I'm going to get about 300 before this thing is done. But you know what? That's a glory to me. Why? Because in tribulations, I count it all joy. I take on the armor of God to do what? To stand. And this is where we've got to get to, that it's not by my strength, it's not by my power, it's his might in me enabling me to stand in his character and to stand in his, in his you know, attributes, stand in what he's like so that we can withstand ultimately. The concept here about stand, stand firm, and withstand, the idea is this. It's when you get ground, when you take ground in the kingdom, don't give any of it back. You take ground, you take more ground, and you withstand. You stand and you withstand. You stand and you withstand. So whatever ground God gives you, you stand there for in the armor of God. And you withstand the attacks of the enemy. You don't allow the enemy to take back what God has given you. Come on. This is full contact Christianity, people. It says, gird your waist with truth. At the end, at, at, at the end of the day, everything has got to be truth. Don't get taken for a, lie, a ride in deception. And the only way that we can gird our ways with truth is by the word of God. I don't know about their opinion. I don't know about all the news reports. I don't know about that stuff, but I know the word is true. I know the word is true. I, you know, there are so many voices in the world, none without signification, but I know that there's one true voice, and it's the voice of the word of God. And when the Holy Spirit emphasizes the word of God to me, that's true. And I can stay with that. I can hang on to that no matter what, no matter what comes. And you know what? I don't have to have an opinion. You've got your opinion. You've got your opinion. Y'all all got your opinion. I don't have to have any of your opinions. I can have the word of God. And if I stay on the word, I'm going to stay anchored to truth. And you know what I know about truth? I will be able to stand and withstand in the evil day if I'm holding on to truth. Beloved, you don't have to jump on the bandwagon of anyone else's opinion. You don't have to, you don't have to get in on all those you know, social justice warrior kind of discussion. You don't have to. You can hold on to truth and speak truth in love, and that's what the church is called to do. Man, that's where I want to live. I want to live in that place where truth is, is girding up. It's the belt that holds it all together. It's girding me up on the inside. Gird your waist with truth. He goes, as a breastplate, righteousness. Here's the deal. We have to live holy. Listen, we've got to live holy. When the church is in compromise, the door is open to the enemy. If you want to stand against the enemy, you can't participate with the enemy. If you're fighting against Satan, you can't be on his side in sin and compromise. I, I, I like saying this. If there's one thing I know about the Holy Spirit, 
His first name is Holy. And so the, the church for, has a long history of having this testimony of hypocrisy where we preach one thing out of this side of the mouth, but we do this thing out of this side. And it just can't be that way anymore. And, and I'll tell you this. As times get more difficult, as evil rises in the earth, as, as wickedness becomes more manifest, as more injustice happens across the nations, I'll tell you this, the gray areas, they're going away. They're going to get knocked away. There won't be a gray area where you can sort of do a little of this and a little of that and then claim the name of Jesus. That is going away. It's going to be yes to Jesus and no to the devil, and that's it. There won't be this, well, I think they're saved. You know, they're a little compromised. It's kind of, you know, hard to tell. No, that's going away. He goes, as a breastplate, righteousness. The Roman legion was known for having these shiny breastplates so, so that when the sun would shine on them and, and they were going to battle in the middle of the day, it would blind the enemy because of the light that was coming off of them. And that's what it's supposed to look like for the church, that we're, we've got breastplates of righteousness and there's light coming off of us. Come on, beloved. Truth, righteousness. He goes, shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. This is, he's quoting almost Isaiah 52. He goes, how beautiful are the feet on the hills of those who bring glad tidings of good news. He goes, get your preaching shoes on. Y'all just missed that one? Shod your feet? Get your preaching shoes on. Get it? Okay. Get ready to preach truth. Get ready to preach the gospel. Get ready to give an account, like Peter said, of people who ask for the hope that's in you. Speak the word in season and out of season. Like what Paul told Timothy, he said, do the work in evangelists, fulfill your ministry. There comes a time, beloved, when the church just has to open its mouth. He goes, get your shoes on, ready to preach the gospel. And use your shield of faith to quench the fiery darts. So the enemy has his deceptions, he has his wiles, his schemes, and then he has his darts, his fiery attacks. Here's the thing. Through every attack, we trust God for deliverance, and our shield of faith quenches the fiery dart. It doesn't mean the dart doesn't hit the shield. It does. Some of you got shields that look like pin cushions. I get it. You've been through it. I get it. But as long as you stay anchored to faith, faith in Jesus will ultimately overcome the attack of the enemy on you. That's how it goes. What the enemy wants you to do is this. Through the attacks, he wants you to begin to doubt Jesus' ability to deliver you and then put your faith in the devil ultimately. See, when we're in doubt and unbelief toward God, guess what we are in? Faith toward the enemy. That's how it works. But he goes, no, believe that God's going to deliver. Believe that the Lord is strong, that he is going to see you through. Believe that the end of your faith is going to be the salvation of your souls. Hold up the shield of faith, and no matter when the attack comes, no matter how it comes, ultimately, the shield of faith, believing in Jesus, trusting in Jesus, will quench the fiery dart. Hanging on to Jesus 
through every storm, through every battle, through every trial, and you will stay standing. And he says, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, the the helmet of salvation, all the blessing of salvation. And that's what we see Jesus in. He's under the helmet of salvation when he comes as king of kings. He's coming as the warrior to win. That's the same helmet we get to wear. And then he says, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, we we have all sorts of verses and all sorts of teaching about quoting the word. But here's what I want to reference. When you see the sword in the New Testament, the sword of the spirit, the word of God in the New Testament, we've got the Hebrews 4 verse that talks about how it is the sharpest two-edged sword. It will divide everything between your soul and your spirit. It will will, discern your thoughts and intentions. If you ever want to know if you're operating by the spirit, just get to the word and allow the word to, to discern you. We got that one. We've got this one But every other time, hear me right now, every other time the word, the sword of the word of God shows up in the New Testament, it is in a battle and judgment context. Jesus coming on the white horse, he's got a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth, slaying the adversaries. It's in the victorious King Jesus that we see the two-edged sword bringing the victory for the armies of God. What am I saying? I'm saying this. As we anchor to the word, as we speak the word, we don't realize what's going on in the spirit, but there is a slaughter going on. As we're speaking the word, demons are fleeing, beloved. And man, if the church could just anchor our opinion to the truth of the word, and speak the truth of the word out of our mouth, even regardless of the difficulty of circumstances, we hold on to the word and we allow the word to dictate our reality. Man, we will win every spiritual battle. It's the picture of Jesus, the conquering king, wielding the sword of the spirit, winning for the church. All right, last thoughts, Roman number four. And then finally, he says this, pray without ceasing. I'm convinced the reason why Paul wrote that there is because in Isaiah 59 says there weren't any intercessors. He goes, so church, jump in on that ministry of intercession. The testimony that came out in Isaiah 59 is there, were no, there, was, there was no one to stand in the gap. He goes, church, pray without ceasing. This is what it's going to take at the end of the age is a church that's agreeing with the heart of Jesus. He goes, pray always with all manner of prayer and supplication in the spirit. He goes, be watchful. That just simply means be alert and be perseverant. Now, I don't even need to tell y'all because many of you have been doing prayer ministry longer than I've been alive. But here's the thing. When you say yes to prayer, you have to say yes to persevering. When you say yes to a life of intercession, you have to say yes to perseverance. And and, and when folks try to do prayer without perseverance, they don't even have a biblical model of prayer. Because he goes, pray at all times with all manner of prayer and supplication for the saints with perseverance. Knock and keep knocking. Ask and keep asking. Stand and then withstand. It takes this on behalf of the saints that we wouldn't just get in this place of when it gets hard, we just give up. 
Just find a new way. It can't be that way for the church. We have got to be willing to stand, to stand in the tension, to stand in the difficulty, sometimes to stand through defeats and to keep standing and allowing that shield of faith to do its work and to quench the fiery darts. And we keep praying and we keep persevering. And we pray again with all manner of prayer. (laughs) You know, every kind of prayer. Help God! That works. Every kind of prayer. Persevering prayer, supplicating prayer, in the spirit prayer, praying in tongues. He goes, with all men of prayer, in the spirit. When you don't know how to pray, you pray in the spirit. Hang in there and pray, beloved. Man, there's, there's just something in me that, you know, I, I don't love spiritual warfare, but there's something in me. I like a fight from time to time. And, and, and I just... The, the church is to have a strong in the Lord and in the power of his might version of fight in them. That we would stand and fight and not allow the enemy to take ground that God is trying to give us. So we persevere. And then he goes, and pray. And this is a prayer I am asking y'all for. He says, pray that utterance will be given to me that I would boldly make known the mystery of the gospel. Man, and I just, I know what this is like as a preacher. There's times when I begin to preach and the words are coming out before I'm even thinking them. What's going on there? Utterance is being given. Listen, y'all don't need another message from Billy. The world doesn't need another message from another human. We need a word from the Lord. And we need utterance given to our preachers. And I'm asking you guys, I'm pleading with you, pray for me, for our proclaimers, our preachers, for our pastoral leadership team in this merge. Pray that utterance is given so we can speak a word of the Lord with boldness, the mystery of the gospel. And then he goes on to say, he goes, that I could speak boldly as I ought to speak. And it's not just about being loud, but it's having utterance. And then when the Lord gives you the utterance, not being fearful. To, to step back, you know, not holding back what the Lord gives you to share because there's a word that God wants to release. Man, I think about Paul. He's in the most difficult situation. I mean, it's just fearsome. I mean, his, he's there in a Roman jail asking for boldness to preach the gospel. Why is he in jail? Because of the gospel. He goes, I want to be bold. What's he thinking about right there? You know what he's thinking about? I'm going to see Caesar. That's what he's thinking about. I'm in a Roman jail. I'm appealing to Caesar. That's where I'm going. Pray for me that I could give that man a word from the Lord. Beloved, he's on his way to see Antichrist, and he's asking for boldness. This is a, this is a, a, a portion that the church has that we don't really get But man, if we will pray for our preachers and our proclaimers that they would have utterance from heaven, oh man, what kind of anointing may come out if you had thousands of people praying for boldness on the gospel through the messengers? And even for ourselves, no matter where we are, that we would all have boldness. But man, what if our main proclaimers that had the biggest platform, what if people quit complaining about how they didn't like their message and they just prayed for utterance to be given? I think about some of these men with the largest platforms and, and some people are like, well, I just don't like their message. Well, what if you just prayed that God would give them a message? Maybe you'd like it better then. 
But spending time complaining about it does nothing. But praying that they would speak the mystery of the gospel with boldness. Oh, beloved. I just, sometimes I feel it, man, when I'm preaching. It's just an unbelievable feeling. And you've been there. You know what that's like when you're t- talking and all of a sudden it's the Lord. But man, you get in this zone and all of a sudden the utterance that's coming through you, you go, that was the Lord. That wasn't me. And that's ultimately what Paul is after right there. He goes, I just want to get in a zone Because I've studied, I've prayed, I've done everything, but I want to get in a zone where I'm boldly declaring the mystery of the gospel and there's anointing on me to do it and the word would come forth and shatter the the cold hearts. Oh, beloved, that we would have a portion in in the ministry in that way as intercessors to jump in and pray that bold proclamation would be given. I love how he says it, as I ought to speak. (laughs) I love that. Amen. And then he just gives the final closing remarks. He goes, you know about my circumstances. You know I'm in jail. He goes, uh, Tychicus, he'll, he'll tell you guys everything. He's a, my beloved, faithful brother and minister to you. I sent him to give you all the details that he's going to comfort you. He goes, pray. He goes, uh, peace to the brethren and love with faith from God, the Father and, lo- uh, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with you, uh, with all those who love our Lord Jesus. And I just thought this last phrase, with incorruptible love. Oh, beloved, I love it. He ends this awesome exposition on the gospel with this phrase, the incorruptible love of God. And that's what we want to stand in. That's what we want to live in, the incorruptible love of God. Amen and amen. All right, let's go ahead. Let's stand.